Making Media tells the story of our media business, Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. Oh my gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Today we have a special guest. There aren't many people who write and live like David Coggins. His book, The Optimist, was one of my favorite reads in recent years. And trust me, you don't need to be interested in fly fishing to enjoy this book. I wanted to talk to David because he has a way of maintaining his creative identity while still adopting many of today's tools. He writes books. He also writes on Substack. He has a Twitter account and an Instagram. So we talked to David about his process for writing, what he is or is not sacred about, how his parents normalized creative acts in his house when he was growing up, and we get some great recommendations from David. So please enjoy this episode of Making Media. If you notice that Dom is not here and we don't have a debrief, he is on his honeymoon. So we will welcome him back with open arms when he returns. So David, thank you for joining us here. I thought a fun place to start would be your childhood. And something that you mentioned in another interview was that growing up with parents that worked in creative fields actually made being a creative feel very normal to you. And I just wanted you to elaborate on that a bit and paint us a picture of what that was like in your childhood. Yeah, great. Thanks, Matt. Great to be here. Childhood is a funny thing because at first you think it's normal and you don't know that it isn't normal until much later and you have some distance and can reflect upon it. So it seemed normal to me to have creative parents. My dad's an artist and my mom's an interior designer and they've both done set design for the theater. And we were taken, as you'd expect, to museums, to bookstores. We traveled to Europe and we lived with many objects. I come from a family of book stackers there is no shelf that is not covered with books, no surface that's safe from my father's collections. And it didn't occur to me until much later when friends came or I went to my friends' houses that this was not necessarily normal. I think a lot has to do with having wicker furniture. That's a dividing line. Either you have wicker furniture and you don't have cable TV or you have the reverse of that, like a comfortable couch. That was a great thing, though. We met my parents' friends. My sister and I were close with my parents' friends who were actors. My dad was the head of the board of a theater group that would come over to our house every Monday night. It was incredible. A lot of them were French. I was there a night off and they would cook and drink and tell stories. And it was an incredible environment. And how could it not be influential if you're around people like that? And also, I think the expectation as a child to talk to adults, interact. And I don't know if it makes you more mature, but I think it makes you used to interacting with people, which is, of course, a good thing. So that was a pretty wild time. And this is all in Minneapolis. This isn't the most avant-garde setting. 
I do think my sister and I were lucky to be exposed to that sort of thing at a young age. And it's hard to remember, I'm sure, but did you embrace it from day one? Was there a period of time where you started to really acknowledge that it was special and as an extension of that, that it started to manifest in whatever you were doing creatively? I think it's good to be exposed to these things when you're young and meaning going to the theater. And of course, there's a little bit, I think we would see the Nutcracker every winter and it was freezing cold and I didn't quite follow everything that was going on, but I think you get used to it more quickly. And if you go to maybe Europe the first time when you're six or seven, of course it seems strange, but you get over that more quickly. And then I think what was unique in our household was that we were encouraged to write or to draw or to do those things. I think that's true in many places. But even as we got older, that wasn't a crazy thing to do with your life. If you wanted to be a writer, you wanted to be an artist. Normally, that's the thing where you're like, let's just try the law school first before we try this other thing. And in this case, people, my friends would come to my house and talk to my dad and you would give them advice about maybe you try the art school first before the law school and give the opposite advice that most people get. And I think that was a special thing. I think it gave us confidence to pursue things that I think are, I don't want to say noble and get carried away here, but I think I'm all for liberal arts education. I'm for people writing. I'm for people doing these things. And I think we're moving away from what might be considered less learn how to code or study something in college that the moment you get out of it, you can do appeal to the job market. And I'm sure that makes sense for some people, but it definitely doesn't make sense for me. You've mentioned a lot of things that were happening outside of a classroom. How much happens inside of a classroom versus outside of a classroom when it comes to these arts, the liberal arts? It won't surprise you to find out I went to a Montessori school. I think I started going there, it was very small. And now I'm sure I wouldn't be able to get in now. Most of the schools I went to are much harder to get in now than when I went there. And I think everyone has theories about how to raise people. I'm sure I'm not really an expert on that. It's good to read books you wouldn't read otherwise. I really believe that. And I think that you can read about people that you have nothing in common with. And I think that there's a reason to study literature and to even just be able to write with some sort of clarity that gives you a sense of human nature that I think we're moving away from. And I don't want to get bogged down or depressed or anything, but reading some of these things, you can learn a lot from Moby Dick. It might surprise you. Or even Anthony Pohl, books by really boring English guys. I'm all for it. Even when you find out what you don't like exactly, I think it's good to have that type of literary education and arts education that even that you move beyond it, it doesn't mean that you're stuck with those things. Some of the times you're exposed to things that then you ultimately say, Charles Dickens, not my guy. But to not ever come in contact with that, the missed opportunity and even the idea that you would set out to see a Wagner opera just to be curious in that way. And then you like, whoa, that is just not for me. But you might be surprised. I think people, they put certain type of art behind a glass window and it doesn't have to be that delicate. I love the opera, not all of them, of course, but to go there, to me, it's like a much more visceral experience. It's not the most hushed, rarefied, quiet thing. And I think that high art has gotten to a place where, because it's not part of our lives in such a natural way, that then there's an uncomfortable marriage in a way. Interesting you mention all this. And in your book about fly fishing, you talk about mentors and having someone introduce you to this art of fly fishing. In many ways, this world of arts feels somewhat similar where you need to have somebody who can introduce you to it because it's not always the most welcoming and a lot of it is behind barriers. How do you think it's best to go about that? You seem to have done a good job. I mean, some of it's been inherited with your father and the locals in your book about fly fishing, the old timers. 
working with someone like Glenn O'Brien, how do you go about finding those people that are going to expose you to these interesting things or lost arts, things that are non-obvious? I love old guys, but when I was younger, I was a little bit afraid of them. And the old guys who were fly fishermen in Wisconsin, where my family has a cabin, I put off fishing with them because I was intimidated by them. They were the age of my grandfather. And at first I avoided them. My life honestly would have been different if I'd fished with them sooner. I would have been much better angler. And those are people teaching you how to do something in a way. And that is a specific, and certain old guys, they want you to do something, but they're understated about it. And then there's a different way. And I've been lucky to have mentors. I don't think that would have called Glenn O'Brien that, or the late Duncan Hanna, the great painter, people who were aesthetic is the wrong word, but their sensibility wore off on me in a big way, how to live, how to have art as part of your life, even at another level that you would have friends who are poets or go out every night to readings. And not that you do all those things, but it's not about demystifying these things because we think they're great, but having reading is something that you love to do. Seeing art is something that you love to do. Living with paintings, not being freaked out to go into an antique store or something like that and have things on your walls that you care about and maybe knowing artists who made them and once that starts, that's usually you're on a pretty good path. But I think as I get older, it's funny, I do like teaching people to fish more than I would have thought. And I think it is oddly where I'm more patient than I would have thought. I think it's because you want to transfer something you care about to people you care about. And I'm more patient when it comes to that than I am in other parts of my life. I also incidentally love to edit other people who I think write well, or even I believe a lot of people can write well and contribute to a magazine or something who aren't professional writers if they have something to say. And I don't think they're encouraged to do that. I think there's a weird idea about writing that it has to sound sort of the way when you were in high school, you tried to sound smarter than you were. I think many people will sound great if they sound like themselves, but there's a barrier because they think they're trying to do something really important and significant, which that's not a final paper or a thesis or something. And I love to edit other people the same way. And I'll say about Glenn O'Brien, I've said it before that he who had many skills and was celebrated in a very outward facing way, but it was a terrific editor, which I thought was a great legacy of his, really supportive, really generous. And I think the art of editing is Robert Gottlieb just passed, not a lost art, but a diminishing art. And someone who edits, that's a really generous thing. I uh, want to help other people when I can help them in a small way. How do you go about finding editors? I think sometimes when it comes to a book, they might be given to you. But you hear that relationship with Caro and Gottlieb, and it's this romanticized idea of what it's like to be author and editor. Are there things that you've done historically where you've been able to find great editors for you? I was lucky in one sense when we went out to try to find a publisher for The Optimist. There was interest in that book. And we, my agent and I, chose Scribner, which is part of Simon & Schuster, because Colin Harrison is the editor there. And you work directly with him, not with his assistant at all. And He's brilliant. And he's edited a lot of successful books, both fiction and nonfiction. All the Light You Cannot See, which is probably the most successful novels of the last 20 years, certainly one of the most unique phenomenons, but all sorts of Pulitzer Prize winning. He's a major person in the field, field that has less major figures than there used to be. And some temperamental thing. He, in some ways, wants to work with the writer, the author. You feel flattered in some way. You talk, you see what he thinks about your book before it happens, and then it's still a very delicate situation when you start sending in first chapters and you're getting the first feedback about something. I think people who write books, because it takes a longer time, it's incredibly private. And then all of a sudden, you're getting feedback and you think you're ready for it, but you're not. Or the moment you are, you're, you want the validation because it's the first person who's 
seen what you've done. And then people work different ways. And I'm always fascinated by it. Sometimes it's just a theoretical discussion. Sometimes it's about the format. Editing is fascinating for me. I know some writers hate it. And I understand that. But I think if the relationship is good, meaning that both sides understand each other, and crucially that the editor and all like all good editors, they want the writer to sound like the best version of themselves. They're not trying to make the writer sound like the editor. That doesn't work. And I work with editors like that at magazines and it's a disaster. You try to avoid that situation. If you can, of course. These are very fascinating to me. I think I'm probably in the narrower part of the spectrum on the editor-writer relationship. But I do believe when we go to in so many experiences we have at hotels or in a restaurant or in films. It's good if someone had run it through a trusted person, whatever the situation is. And I think sometimes it's good to put a little milk in the coffee. How much of a difference was it when you went from, and my impression was you were writing online and doing some things with magazines, and then you took the step up to the book. How different of an experience was it going from writing online to writing a book? It's big. The first thing I really did, I was an art critic. I wrote a lot for art magazines, Art in America, especially Modern Painters, where I worked for some incredibly smart editors, really serious women. They were all women, wrote exhibition reviews, and they came right at it. I would put one joke in every review. One joke would come out of every review. And they made me extremely much sharper in my approach. And that was a great experience that I think People will have less and less as you get fewer magazine editors on staff who went to journalism school, take it really seriously. And so that was a great experience. In a way, I took it too seriously because I was writing pretty dry. Used to writing art criticism doesn't translate well to writing about more clothing and style and travel. And I think Glenn helped me open my style up a little bit. And that was really good for me. It could be a little looser. He would say, let the air into it a little bit. There was a time when I was writing for Men's Vogue website, of all things, had another great editor, a man named Owen Phillips, who used to be the art editor at The New Yorker. And he also helped me a lot. I wrote a ton for them. I would go out and there would be an auction at Sotheby's of Sopranos memorabilia or something. And I would go out and write very quickly. And it was really good for me to write a lot and fast. The nature of it made me be a little more relaxed about things. And then it was time to do a book. I was about to turn 40 and I thought, I think I want to do a book. And the book became Men in Style. I was getting older. I was thinking more about how men dress, what they learn from their fathers, how they arrive at their sensibility, the mistakes they've made, how they became who they became, which I guess happens as you get to that late 30s, 40s, in my experience. That book also had a lot of artwork and photographs, which I was very involved in. And it was an elaborate process. And doing the proposal was a huge process. And one that I enjoyed because I like all those things and I like the editing and everything else. Then The Optimist, though, had no artwork in it. For the most part, it was just a straight writing book. And that's extremely different. You're just turning in a Word document and then there's nowhere to hide. It's not about the production values or if it's uncoded or coded paper. You're just on the page. And I think you have to be really confident at that point. Or maybe you don't be confident, but you have to act confident. You have to believe what you're saying is important. And that's just hard to do. It doesn't get less hard, to be honest. With most things, I feel like that's the case. And there's a lot of great quotes from writers about writing remains the hardest thing, even as you get better at it over time. I love writing, though. And I talk I have many friends who are writers who don't like it. This may change later. And I'm feeling pretty lucid these days. I just finished another book. It was finalized a week ago. Part of writing is the actual act is not the difficult part for me. It's understanding how it's going to sit. Editing is a huge part. It gets edited like crazy hundreds of times. 
I think I have a bad reputation, like making changes, many changes, thousands of changes. But you got to do it to get it to where you think it's supposed to be. But it's not usually the part of the writing. It's how it's ultimately going to be arranged, which is different than how it comes out of you in a way. It's sort of like the seasoning when you taste something. It's like it needs more salt, right? Sometimes you don't know what it is. Of course, we all say just throw some salt in it, but it's usually not that. Or maybe it's always that. Are there themes to those changes? You have Ogilvy, who has his principles on writing and in terms of clarity or humor or any identifying theme in terms of when you're going back in something that you want to get across that's not coming across? The hardest part is when you write something like by the time a book has come out, I'll have read it a hundred times, but you have to imagine someone reading it the first time. Your joke, if you try to put a joke in there, is you're so tired of it at that point. I'm sure if you've ever given a toast or something like that, or you're speaking in public, you're like, oh, wait, this kind of laugh line worked. Or obviously some fall flat. That's worse because you're staring at the audience or good if they respond. If a book, you don't know if someone doesn't think it's funny. I think a very important thing, so this is like narrative nonfiction, right? These are travel stories about me fishing, typically. I want to bring in some other part of the culture, the places where I go, if I'm fishing in Spain or Patagonia, and you want to capture some of what it's like there. You want the whole thing to be moving forward with a certain narrative momentum. And sometimes you get caught up in details about the streets of Buenos Aires, and they may be interesting, but they may not be the right thing at the right time. And just because the detail is exciting to you, distracts people from how the thing is moving. So that's where an editor can really help because they know what you want to do, but they're seeing it for the first or second time. And so they say, let's just keep this thing moving here and let's not get distracted. Or you try to do some kind of comic riff. Yeah, maybe it's funny or clever and you don't want to get caught up in your own cleverness. Let's keep this thing moving. Often it's about taking it out, keeping it going. Then the other thing that's harder is when you want to let your emotional part show. And you don't really want to do that because it's hard to do that and it's frustrating. You got to ask yourself a lot of questions about how you feel. You're vulnerable in that moment. And so usually the editor is like, we need a little bit more of you here. You say, yeah, yeah. And you add a line and they look at it again, like, no, a little more, come on a little more. And they've got their way of doing it. But generally, if you haven't learned something about yourself in this process, then you're not asking enough questions about yourself. And so in almost anything you write, even if it's a shorter essay, you should arrive at some place you didn't expect which is easy to say, but you've just got to go through the whole process to do it. You've got to write your way to that place. And that's a big thing and a fun thing. And it's frustrating when it doesn't happen, but you got to let yourself and be open with yourself to get to that place. And you reference this a lot of, or at least what I've read recently with The Optimist was memoir style. So you are getting some of that emotion coming out. How are you documenting that? And have you adjusted over time in terms of whether it's journaling or something else along those lines to be capturing what you're feeling in the moment and then translating that onto a page. The Optimist was about things that had happened for the most part a long time before. So I had processed them, to use the phrase, made sense to me. And then it was about making sense of all of those things that made sense. The book I just finished, which is very similar themes, is called The Believer, was about a bunch of fishing I did in a year in the middle of my life after the pandemic and trying to go out to do these things that I might not be able to do as I get older and just as domestic considerations change. Then I was traveling, knowing I was going to write about them. They hadn't settled yet. And that's a strange thing when you're doing something that you know you're going to write about. It's not quite as honest. I mean, in some way it's helpful. So yes, I carry a very small book if I'm on the water that can get wet and I write things down. If a guide says, 
that's really funny or unusual or phrasing often if it's like a person speaking in their second language they say something that's very profound so you write it down right there i even like you text it to yourself if in some situation where you don't have a notebook what's the notebook you carry not to give free advertising but i'm still a moleskin person the pocket moleskin but then i have some smaller moleskins three came in a packet i think and they're brown paper those were easy to put in a pocket and just scribble on and sometimes if i even run out of that i just take the stationery from the hotel or a pad of paper and those are really just to get certain phrases that are impossible to remember because they're so unusual then i go back that night and i write about certain things that happened in the moleskin in ink and just to get immediate impressions of things and then at the end of a trip, I'll come back and sit down and properly write at a computer in the morning for a few hours for days until I have lots of pages, lots and lots. And then I take that and try to shape it or try to realize what actually was happening or what I learned. It is strange when you know you're going to write about it. It's really hard to write right after that happens. That was one reason I was editing so much to the suffering of some of the people at the publisher, because I just, even two months, you get a better perspective on what's happening. If someone said, what did you think of, I don't know, some political event or some performance you saw, and at first it wasn't satisfying the way you thought. Have you ever seen a movie where at first there was something not that satisfying about it? is often by really good directors. And then much later, you're like, oh, no, this is great. It took me a while to catch up to how great this was. And then I really admire that type of movie and the type of confidence that a director has for not giving you everything you thought you want right away and letting you come to them. And then you're like, oh, wait, anyone like Paul Thomas Anderson, a musician like Boney Bear, when he's trying to do something really different than the last thing and he won't play the hits or the classics and he tried something you're like why is he screwing around with these synthesizers or whatever and then in two years it sounds classic now at this point it took that much time for us to catch up i can certainly see with myself how much my perspective changes on something as i reflect and some of it gets into the distance from the event one of the things that sticks out to me and you referenced this a bit before was travel and i remember my parents taking me to paris when I was in high school at this point, but a freshman in high school, and I just had no appreciation for the environment I was in. I was very intrigued by what was going on around me, but it was very head scratching. But now I look back on that and I think about how much it influenced me. And I absolutely love Paris now. And I've been back a ton. If you would have asked me to write about it at that time, I would have said, why are these hotel rooms so tight and small and they don't have air conditioning? It's a tricky situation. Well, I think sometimes when you're young, in particular, you're comparing something to what you're familiar with. And so you're incredibly aware of what it doesn't have that you are used to. And then as you're older, when you're interacting with music or art or something cultural, it's often the gap is between what it was and what you were expecting it to be. It's going to be interesting how Oppenheimer ages. It's interesting when people during COVID were going back to watch The Sopranos. It's very different the second time you watch it. For one thing, it's just like downright hilarious. I knew that, but I didn't realize how hilarious it was, partly because you're so caught up in what's happening with the plot. When you're separated from what the plot, then you see all sorts of other things. And that's why like rewatching any show is just completely different than the first time, because we're by nature wanting to find out what happens. The Wire was my experience with that, where even the first time I watched it, didn't have the connection then well after the fact. That's a perfect example because The Wire took forever to understand how they spoke to each other and the rhythms of the friendships and what they were doing. And then once you get used to it, that's why you have to be like, take a few episodes. It takes a while. Thing you hate to hear now, but they were ahead of the game there. And I think Deadwood was that way too. When Deadwood, which got not lost to time, but was ahead of its time, 
they're talking in this crazy way. One of those, when Shakespearean villains are talking and it takes you a while to get up to speed, but then once you are, you're like, elsewhere and what more do you want? <laughs> the guy's incredible. You traveled a lot when you were younger. You still travel a lot. And I know part of that is maybe a requirement for the book. I'm not sure whether it is or isn't, but it seems like it's had a big influence just in terms of how you can appreciate culture and different things. And I'm curious, do you make a commitment to that amount of travel or do you view it in a very specific way where I want to be spending a specific amount of time seeing different places and being in some of these really interesting, I think Cuba, Paris, going to Japan next week. So it's not an uninteresting list of destinations. I live in New York probably for 25 years now, give or take, stop doing the math after 20. And it's a great place to live, but I leave it a lot. That's just part of the way that helps me stay sane here. And I like to go to places to fish. And I like to go to places for the cultural interaction, two different experiences. One is you're just in the natural world fishing, but in a place that's gorgeous. And another, you're going to museums and restaurants and around other people. And I think when you're younger, you really want to see as much as you can. At least in my experience, as you get older, then you can get narrow it a little bit more. So I like to go back to places I've been before to see the churches I like and the restaurants I like and the people I like and the hotels I like. You can judge the passage of time if you go to Paris. So our family, starting in probably high school, we started to go to Paris every year for New Year's. My dad wrote a book about it called Paris in Winter that I helped edit. <laughs> Incidentally, it's a whole separate conversation. You go back to these places and you have a history there, a family history and a personal history. You go with your girlfriend and you remember each time you've been there, which is wonderful and has added meaning. Sometimes you go away from a place because it changes. It's an interesting time for travel because of COVID deprived people of it. And then they were back with a vengeance and maybe too much of a vengeance. And I think there's going to be reassessment of what people want and why they want to go to certain places. I know that's the case for me. I think when there's an intense amount of friction and social media, there's a lot of things that are complicated or lines outside cafes because they appeared in some ridiculous TV show and you're just like, what's going on here? I mean, I love Buenos Aires. I think it's a great city. I think it's a really underappreciated place because it's hard to get to, but once you're there, it's absolutely extraordinary. And if you like to fish, you go into Patagonia. It's just one of the great trips you can have. I've gone to Japan a lot. I lived in Japan for a year after college and I went back for work, but then I started to go every year with my sister. Wonderful experience. It's a great place and she loved it. It was great to go back and have that as part of our year. That sort of stopped with COVID. So I'm excited to go back myself. And this is for work. I'm writing some stories while I'm there. To have those places in your life, it's really great. But then also, I spend a lot of time at our cabin in Wisconsin. It's a very simple place. I spend a ton of my summer there. I'm not going to Italy. I'm not doing these other things. So it doesn't have to be that way. I spend time in the Catskills where I also fish a lot. I can be very happy in a small wooden house in the woods. And I think it's good to be able, for me at least, to be self-sufficient that way. It's not, I'm not on the road. I'm not happy. I try to be happy wherever I am. I think that's part of it. And also, when I travel, I don't have quite the insane urgency I used to have to see everything. If I'm in a place, I'm like, this is a great cafe. I enjoy being in the cafe. I'm not like, get up, we've got to go to the next thing. And I know some people still have that feeling and there's something wonderful when you realize you've been on your feet all day walking around. But sometimes it's, you're in a cool bar in Japan. You're like, why am I leaving this place? It doesn't get better than this. When you're in the right place, you should take your time and enjoy it. There's something to a mix, which... I mean, I used to experience it in the most boring way where I had an office job and just leaving and spending two days in Milwaukee for work event would be a change of pace and I would get to do some stuff there. 
And then I would be even excited to come back and appreciate that I had a widescreen monitor where I could do my work more easily. And it can make you appreciate all the different things, but it's nice to be able to appreciate wherever you are. Do you have a general philosophy for deciding I'm going to try something new versus I know I like these things. The best example is always the Manhattan restaurants. Why am I trying new places when I have a few that I particularly like? I try to have a core cities or core countries I like, and then I just add slightly onto that. It's interesting about why we try something new. And my general rule of restaurants is let them be open for a while, typically. Sometimes you get invited to something and you go to check it out. But there was a time... When I moved to New York, you get New York Magazine, you'd open it up, what's new, and you'd go there that day. And now I would rather not do that. I would rather it calms down, give them a chance to find out what works and what doesn't. And then just the hype has moved on a little bit. And often, maybe sometimes the restaurant will open for lunch. Okay, lunch, let's do it. 2.30, when there's the fewest number of people there, rather than Friday at 8, when the whole world is trying to get in. And I think that's the same in cities, too. It'll be really interesting to see what happens after this past summer in Italy and all the weather and the crowds and this, the insanity. But if you're trying to decide to go to a place because it was in an HBO show, I don't know what to say. That just sounds awful to me. <laughs> of course, it looks good on the show or whatever it is, but give it time, man. Doing something after it's been on TV is almost guaranteed to not quite work out the way you want it to be. Yes, let it breathe. It attracts a certain group that you probably have to ask yourself, do I want to be associated with that group? You reference something interesting about editing your father's work. I'm sure that he edited your work at some point in time. So did you return the favors? What made that such a unique experience? I tell this story and he denies it, which does not mean it's not true, but that he edited my writing when I was a boy, a schoolboy, pretty aggressively. It wasn't nice works on you're doing fine. It was got out the blue pencil and I could stay up past my bedtime these things was actually was awful because then I knew like this could go on for a long time. And I would bring it back down to him from my room or whatever. And he would finally, it got to a good place. And I was told then when I got to high school and the college that I wrote in a clean way, and I'm sure that had a lot to do with him. And it was funny then much later when he would worked on this manuscript for this Paris book that I helped him with to get the pencil back, so to speak. And Editing is, especially when you know a person well, it's a delicate thing. It's sort of like telling someone what they should wear after they've already decided what they want to wear. You got to go around the edges or just ask a question. And a lot of it's delivery. Of course, people feel vulnerable, even if they don't admit that. Some of them really do admit it. In some way, it's a great thing to do. And in another, I'm like, I don't know why anyone would want to do this. You tend to feel like you're the bad guy. I mean, we get this in a very, very different situation with a podcast. It is not like writing, but there are some similarities where someone asks you how they did. And if you want to give them honest feedback and help them out, you have to give them honest feedback and help them out. But it's not always fun being that person. And the appreciation doesn't always come in the moment. It usually comes well after the fact, which is tricky. Everyone who says, how did I do? Or what did you think of it? Do you honestly want people to know? If I want to find out, I can just read one star reviews of my book on Amazon. Get the knife in right there. You talked a little bit about writing in the moment and then in the evening, in the mornings. Do you have rituals that you stick to when it comes to writing? For me, the more I do it, the better it is. The more you cook, the more you end up cooking, the more you write, the more you end up writing and just habits. And also, I try to not make it a huge deal. If you wait a long time, then it's harder to start something. And usually, if I get commissioned to do a story for a magazine, I'm excited that that happened. So I just start writing right away while I'm still in a good mood rather than, oh, this is due in a week and I'm now I'm dreading it. 
And I just try to get ahead of it that way. It's funny, we've talked this whole time. We haven't talked about Substack or a newsletter because that was like a complete game-changing situation. A terrible phrase, game change. Sorry to blight your podcast with. Well, on our podcast, I'm guilty of overusing that one. That was a really different situation. I think I was, in a way, if I can say, well-prepared for it because I was talking about writing a lot and editing. So then a newsletter felt natural to me because it was, I think I know myself and my strengths pretty well at this point. And I know what my audience wants. So this was a situation where I could write something. And at first, when I started doing the newsletter, they were more essays and a little too formal, I realized, for the way people want to read something often on their phone. They were too long. I made them a little shorter, more conversational, how I also interacted with other people's newsletters. And so I think it's gotten to a place where I often write those in the morning and keep them pretty fresh and pretty fast, edit them very lightly so they're a little more conversational. I think that makes sense for the medium. Often, a huge thing of what we're talking about here is what makes sense for what magazine or book and the speed people want from it or what they're expecting and how they're going to engage with it. Someone who sits down to read a book is in a very specific frame of mind. It's harder to get into that frame of mind. You've got to take your time and set down the phone and all the rest of it. If you wake up and you look at your phone and you're scrolling through, you want something else. Or if you're on the train, you want something else. Podcasts are also competing with it or a magazine. It's got to make sense for the magazine it appears in if you write a story versus in your own newsletter where people expect it to sound like you. So you're always asking what is the best format and what's the best tone of voice for where it appears. Of all of those mediums, if we just took books, the newsletter, and magazine editorials, if you could just stick with one of those and let's say financially you were being supported by whichever medium it was, what would be the one that you would pick? The problem with the book, which I like the idea of a book because it lasts, it will exist. And I hope as long as people fish, they'll read The Optimist. That's a great thing for me to think about. But it's also intense. At a certain point, the fact that it's going to last a long time makes you put pressure on yourself and to have higher expectations. There are certain points within the process of writing a book, my beloved girlfriend will tell you, where it makes you a really difficult person to be around. I have been uninvited from trips where I had this idea that it was going to be really romantic to finish a book in a European hotel room because that's what writers I like to do. It's not romantic. It's awful. I was very stressed. Don't do that. So I got uninvited from some things we were supposed to do together. And I just stayed in New York and rode alone in the apartment. And it was good. I think I spent my first New Year's in New York City since I was 20, just alone writing for a week and finishing the book. And that was necessary. And that's not something that you always want to do. And then at the newsletter is very different because you're writing regularly and you're interacting with people regularly. There's an audience and a community, people commenting and writing you back about it. And that's really nice because you're having this interaction. Your writing feels connected to someone. You hardly ever have a sense of what your book is doing that people will, of course, come up and tell you, but it's not so immediate. And then magazine stories are somewhere in between. All sorts of other people are involved and all sorts of other things happen. So it's hard to say. It would be silly to say, I want to just write newsletters the rest of my life, but that's almost like the easiest way to what food do you want to eat every day for the rest of your life? I don't know, something basic that I like. It was a tricky question intentionally. I know the answer is not magazine articles. I think that was clear. Do you think that immediate feedback that you can get in a much different way, do you think that makes you a better writer? And I guess as differently, if someone was a younger, aspiring writer, author, is that something that you would highly recommend they do, have some type of newsletter publication or write online? I think the most important thing if you're a young writer is to write a lot. 
really write a lot, kind of want to write through your style. The first thing young artists have often is they're obsessed with style. What's my style? And the artists and writers they like have a really strong style, right? So it's like when a young person likes J.D. Salinger or a young person likes, I don't know, Led Zeppelin. I realize these are very dated, but okay, or Quentin Tarantino, but someone with a really instantly recognizable, powerful, those are things that 15-year-old guys like or used to like. I want to get through that. First, you're going to make collages like Robert Rauschenberg or something, but you want to get through that. And the only way to do that, maybe you dress in a really recognizable way and you've got to get through that too. And that happens by getting older and doing it more. I would like to say if you worked with a good editor, but most young people are not going to have that sort of good editor. Now, most people who are editors at magazines, they don't even think of themselves like this is the main thing I do. Some of those people are my friends. Publishing does not have the infrastructure to really nurture a writer and have him or her get to the best place they can be by the time they're 32 to really take whatever the next step. A newsletter is a good but dangerous thing because some people are like, oh, I can finally write without an editor. Yeah, but maybe you need to write with an editor and for a certain amount of time, and then you can write without it much better. If I had blog or the newsletter when I was 25 or 30, it would have been very different than what it is now. I consider my practice to be pretty disciplined. And I think that's important to me that I assess it and try to make it better, not just, oh, no one is telling me what to say. I take it seriously. It's how I make my living and I want it to stand for something good. It's not a secret side project or a B-side. This is it. The newsletter changed my life. At Substack, it's not everything for everybody, but it is a lot for me. And I think that if you're a young person, it doesn't always need to be published, but it's important. These compromises are important. Sometimes you're going to have to do them at some point anyway. And you also learn a lot from an editor. Our first instinct, and I was alluding to this earlier, is not always perfect. If I have an idea for a book or how I want to do something, my agent isn't like, great idea, let's do it. He's like a complete pain in the ass and says things that I don't want to think about, like how does this fit in the marketplace or how are you going to do this? When I talk to people who are making a book, which I often think many people should make books, but they don't always ask certain questions or are honest about them. What are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to have this reach a large audience? Are you trying to have it be very specific to what you want to say, but understanding that might be a smaller audience? Do you want to make money? Do you not care about that? Do you want it to be beautiful? Will you accept whatever the publishers say? Do you want a fancy publisher? Do you want one that no one's heard of? These are big questions. And books, unfortunately, are not where you're going to make all the money anyway. And they're even more fraught because you're doing them within a pretty narrow margin. And I think anyone who starts writing, it's worth asking those questions. And it doesn't mean you're a sellout. It doesn't mean you're overly principled or unrighteous. I think you want to have some sense of where you want your work to be and how you want it to connect to people. And unfortunately, the only way to do that is to do it and experience it. And be like, okay, I don't like being in Maxim magazine or whatever it is. Or it's actually like, yeah, you know, no one's read it in a while, but people are only reading my link. They're not even reading the magazine. And it was a chance to write about something strong or whatever it was, something you cared about. I've been in magazines, like half of them have gone out of business. And they had different eras, the Playboy interviews and the Esquire interviews of yesteryear. It was crazy. I was just researching this article I'm actually doing for Esquire that will be coming out very soon. And it was why I was in Cuba. And I was reading through the Esquire archive, and you can't believe the writers who are writing that, not just like Hemingway and Fitzgerald, but John Cheever, Norman Mailer, and all these magazines. Every major figure, Richard Ford, is writing in magazines. It's just completely different, huge pieces, too, not just what I did in my summer vacation. It's heady, heady 8,000-word stories. With 
someone like Hemingway, you have Cuba, Paris, Key West. He seemed to be in these environments that were always just ripe with design and culture and interesting things going on around him. How much of that is a piece of your own writing process? And that could be just whether it's in the room that you write and having the aesthetic around you in the environment, whether it's the city or somewhere else. Is there anything to take away from that, specifically citing Hemingway there? Well, I mean, it was a good life in many ways. The places he was were incredible and hated New York, incidentally. (laughs) Thought it was a rotten city. And why would you be in New York when you could be in Paris or Venice? For me, as far as where I write in the country, I write in the city. I'd like to be in a place where I'm alone, typically, and where I have some space, just a room with a table and not other people. People write in public. If I'm sitting in a bar at the end of the night and have some ideas, I'll take out a notebook and write in it. And that's fun, especially in a foreign city where no one knows me. I'm just happy to write what happened to me that day or what's on my mind or if I'm having lunch alone. But as far as writing, writing, which I mean at a computer in the document, I just like to be the morning or afternoon. I don't really like to be observed. I don't know what I look like or I get up to walk around or I have something to drink. And I think that's true of a lot of people, but I don't need quote unquote inspiration from the place. For me, it's just coming from a different, and I'm not saying this for anybody else, just straight up for me, the writing is dealing with the writing and the process is dealing with the process. And I can't always locate where that's from, getting a little personal here, but it's just coming, it deals with that thing and it doesn't deal with anything else. It's not about mood. It's not about environment in that way. And I don't know if that's true for other people. You read the Paris Review interviews, everyone has their own way. James Salter, he rewrote it out again or typed it out again. I'm like, that is insane. Even if he was only changing one part of one passage, wrote the whole thing out because he liked the language in that way. That to me is absolutely insane. And also, I don't know how anyone could write without a computer. It's crazy. I edit so much. Cut and paste is just part of the air I breathe. And I take it you don't have any rules like I start my next sentence and go to sleep with that written out or anything like that? No, I use Microsoft Word, the world's least intuitive computer program, and I can't get out of it exactly. And I know there are better ones. That one is also what's used often for places I work with. And I now have to pay for it. Everybody uses it. And unfortunately, I subscribe on my birthday. I don't know how that happened. So I get this announcement from my credit card that I'm renewing for like the world's worst thing on my birthday. Somehow makes sense. But all I do is put that sucker on no distraction mode or something. It just makes the outside of the page black. So I can't see all my little red numbers popping up on email and things. And that's the only thing I like a clean page and try not to be distracted that way. I do some other weird stuff. I listen to the same music over and over, never with lyrics. Sometimes it'll be like Gregorian chant or something that's just low mood or Bill Evans piano, but never lyrics, never anything that's exciting. It's almost like ambient music to just set this very low key background tone for me. That's just personally how I do it. I have to ask when they do bring up what makes a successful book for you, what's going to be a good outcome? What is your answer to that? And saying commercial money success is a completely fine answer. I'll say it. You want to be happy when you see it in the world. The hardest part about a book, and Chuck Klosterman, who I absolutely adore, talked about this, that book is coming out from you at a different time in your life. So even when it's here, it's not that you've moved beyond it, but you've evolved from that point. It's a very strange experience. It's sort of like if you went back and looked 
I don't even know, like at a yearbook or if I go back to Men and Style, which came out seven or eight years ago, my concerns were, of course, related, but slightly different. And I think you want to be charitable to yourself because, of course, you're going to evolve and move on. And so you'd see things that you would slightly do differently, but you want to be a little tenderly towards that younger version of yourself. Of course, you want your book to be read by, in one sense, a group of people that you've never met, and then by a handful of people who you respect. I know that The Optimist has been read by heroes of mine, and that was very exciting to me, and that they've written me to tell me they liked it. And you're like, whoa. But then you get mad about something else, and you're like, but if you had just thought that these three people read it and liked it, why are you worried about this other thing that happened? That's life. Someone tells you the five good things that happened, you're mad at the sixth thing that didn't happen. That's just a constant friction. And who doesn't want it to be part of some lasting cultural equation that people will come back to it? And you can think about it and you can't dwell too much on it because if you do, you're never going to get anything done, or at least I'm not. When I was younger, I did want things to be perfect and it kept me from doing things. I was afraid they wouldn't be perfect. That's a better way to say it. You know, these people who make movies every two years and sometimes they're good and sometimes I wanted to get to that myself with books. It's not everything. It's about one huge project every decade with all the stress on it. It's keep them coming out, be a working writer. Hopefully some things get a little bit above it. You're probably going to crank out some that aren't quite as good. And God knows I've got a book that just bombed. What are you going to do? These things happen. Of course, I can blame the publisher of this thing and it wasn't my fault. My name's on the front. It is my fault or I'm the one who gets the thing. I don't think you want to just hold out for the perfect time for almost anything you do, because very rarely do all the conditions align. I've recently started to read a lot about Steven Soderbergh's career, and he's one of the most interesting examples. And you compare it to James Cameron, who, listen, James Cameron has done a lot of amazing things. You could read between the lines in terms of how many people love working with Soderbergh. And Cameron is a little bit more of a prickly pear when it comes to the work. Soderbergh is so perfect about it because not only does he keep the thing moving, he learns from what he does and then can react against that, whether it's technical because he's always trying new lenses and shooting things himself or how he edits it or how he releases the films. I mean, he's American hero as far as I'm concerned. Well, this has been an incredible conversation. One last question. If you were to point towards one piece of work, whether it's a book or a movie or a piece of art, that you would recommend creatives experience at least once, what would that be? If you're a writer, I would read John Cheever's diaries. And maybe it's because of my age that when I read those, I was incredibly moved by those. For one thing, he's an American writer, I think. Got to honor our people who helped create our voice, whether we know it or not. And to me, the diaries are about his family, whom he loved, even though he was an incredibly difficult husband, as well known. Beautiful writing about nature beautiful, just gorgeous about New England and all the seasons. His own complicated personal life and demons that he's absolutely unsparing about. So to me, the range of those things and just writing that's as beautiful as ever been written in this country. And to have all those things in one place is just incredible. And when you read it, it's profound, it's personal, sometimes it's very modest and even close to self-loathing. And it's a real range of emotions. It's great. I can also just say The Marriage of Figaro, my great opera that also has a range of emotions, just impossibly beautiful. But I do think the diaries are really great. And also, you can just pick them up and put them down because I hesitate to recommend people read hundreds and hundreds of pages. But I think once you start, you can recognize some of yourself in there, even in some way, which is really great. Well, thank you very much, David. This has been excellent. 
Thanks so much, Matt.